Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. The screen says, oh, it was fixed. Somebody fixed it. It said 25 this morning, but now magically has been repaired. Matthew 24, verse 15 is where I want to direct your attention. Matthew 24, verses 15 through 25, I'm going to read there uh, in just a moment. While you're turning there, I will say good morning to our friends who are here from overseas. They uh, uh, have been in the States for some time and are still hoping to return overseas, but they're here today with us. So glad. Your brother was here in the first service. You're here now. Hopefully that's not a sign of conflict, no rift. You try not to get too close to him. Yes, okay, that's true. Uh, But um, since we're live streamed, that's all I'll say, but it's good to have our friends with us uh, this morning. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Matthew 24, verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, and Matthew says, let the reader understand, Ah, we're going to try, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down and take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. On Tuesday of this week, in his daily review of headlines, Albert Moeller, in his podcast called The Briefing, spoke about an article that was in the Sunday New York Times, a big article with a big picture, and it was called the article Good Spirits. It was a profile of a woman by the name of Carissa Schumacher. Carissa Schumacher worked in the business world for a number of years, but then she had left in order to pursue her calling as a medium. A medium is someone who purports to speak on behalf of the dead, to communicate messages from the dead. What makes Carissa Schumacher unique is that the main uh, voice that she channels is Yeshua. That's what she says, Yeshua, which is the Hebrew pronunciation of the name Jesus. She has a significant following, Carissa Schumacher does, among celebrities in the meeting that they uh, reported on. Uh, The guests there, the host, I think, was uh, Jennifer Aniston, and Uma Thurman was there, and Andy McDowell was there. She's booked for months. If you want to uh, a consultation with her, she charges $1,111 per hour. As someone else who only works one hour a week, that's pretty good. Um, she said, so, so uh, uh, Carissa Schumacher was, uh, uh, she was, uh, this is how she said she 
came in touch with the spirit of Yeshua. She was walking in the forest, and just as she was coming home from her hike, she felt a blue flame go down her spine, heard glass shatter and a baby cry, and that's when Yeshua's energy came into her. When she speaks on behalf of Jesus, her posture changes, her voice gets low, and she starts speaking in a slight British accent. Jennifer Aniston said, the Yeshua channeling thing is way out there. And for some people, it's going to be insane, this idea of someone channeling Jesus. But it's more about this message that she's tapped into. Everything she's communicated to me just resonates. You can imagine that we as Christians would have some serious questions about what Carissa Schumacher is doing, um, some significant um, uh, skepticism. I, 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 you know me, I have snide comments. For example, I find it fascinating that Jesus supposedly now speaks in a British accent. You would think he would at least speak in an Israeli accent, you know? Um, or a slightly less snide, you can't be a channel for Jesus. You can't be a medium speaking for the dead Jesus because Jesus is not dead. There's that. Then um, Isaiah chapter 8 says, raises this question. Isaiah chapter 9 is the great passage that talks about the child being born, the son being given. We'll read it again sometime in December, I'm sure. Right before that, it says, don't consult mediums and spiritists, Isaiah the prophet says. Why speak to the dead on behalf of the living? I have those objections and others, but but take, I want you to take that profile and set it down next to this passage that we just read. Jesus is very concerned in this sermon. He, he places a strong emphasis on it. He's talking about massive world-changing upheavals that are going to happen. He's clear that he wants his people to have rock-solid convictions about where he can be found. If we're going to hear from Jesus, where can we go? If we're going to meet with Jesus, where, where should we go to, to meet him? He, he speaks. This is a day in which, this day of upheaval that he's talking about, there's going to be no shortage of false teachers. Someone will come along and say he's in the wilderness. That's where John the Baptist was. Is he out in the wilderness? Jesus says no. Somebody's going to come along and say he's in the inner rooms. That's where the zealots meet to plan their revolutions. Is he there? No. Is he here? No. Is he there? No. Jesus almost sounds like uh, Dr. Seuss. He's not here. He's not there. You won't find him anywhere you're looking. He's, he's very concerned about this. And he says, don't believe them. Don't believe them. Sometime we should, I'm going to talk about, I have a sermon called The Spirituality of Skepticism. Don't believe it, Jesus says. Don't, don't believe all those people. He is concerned. He wants his readers, Matthew wants his readers, Jesus wants his listeners to have rock-solid certainty about where Jesus can be found and where, how can we hear from Jesus. Remember, this warning comes in the fifth of five sermons that Matthew uses to organize his gospel. This fifth sermon is prompted by a question that the disciples ask as they were leaving the temple in Jerusalem during the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry before the crucifixion. They're walking out of the temple. Jesus is walking and the disciples are gawking. 
looking at this magnificent building, as, as well you should. This, the temple that Herod built, that Herod started, that was under construction for um, 60 years. Actually, they completed it three years before the Romans destroyed it. But, but as they were walking through this massive building, it was built on a 35-acre platform. This is the largest architectural platform that has ever been built on the planet by human beings. Some of the stones, uh, the foundation stones, weigh 300 tons. We're still not sure how they got those in place. It's a massive building. And Jesus says, I tell you, not one stone is going to be left on another. I read this week a little bit more about Jesus' prophecy here and how accurate he was in saying that with that specificity. When the Romans destroyed the temple in AD 70, they found Herod had put gold everywhere in the stones, in the mortar. It was just gold was everywhere. And in order to get that gold out, the Roman soldiers turned every stone upside down in order to dig it out, carve it out, chip it out. That prompts the question, when Jesus says, I tell you, not one stone's going to be left on another, the disciples, they have questions. And in verse 3, they ask this question. They say, tell us, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I told you last week, this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Matthew to understand, in part because the disciples are asking one question about one event that are actually two events. They think, they think it's one. The temple's going to be destroyed. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to set up his kingdom. Uh, great, this one event. What are going to be, when will that happen? What are the signs going to be? What they don't realize is actually there are two events that they're asking about. The temple was destroyed in AD 70, and Jesus still has yet to come the way he promised here in Matthew chapter 24. There are some people who read this, some brothers and sisters who read Matthew 24 and think that Jesus is primarily talking about what happened in that war in AD 70, before, uh, after most of the New Testament books were written. Jesus is speaking about that event that's going to happen 35 years after he speaks here. There are some brothers and sisters, though, who think that Jesus is talking chiefly about his second coming, about the second event that has still yet to happen. Both of these views have, have challenges, and, and um, neither of them are, are simple. For example, these brothers and sisters are going to have to explain how is it that when Jesus talks about the second coming being so obvious, we're going to talk about it more next week, Lord willing, how, how, that didn't happen in AD 70 the way he said. These brothers and sisters who think primarily Jesus is talking about the second coming may have to answer, why did Jesus not answer their question about the destruction of the temple? If he's only talking about the second coming, why didn't he answer this question? Mm. My own view, which um, is, is not challenge-free either, is I think that, that Jesus is talking about both of these events simultaneously, that they mirror one another, that there are things that happened in AD 70 that are also going to happen right before he comes, They'll be worse and amplified and magnified at that time, but it, there were things that happened in AD 70 that will happen again right before he comes. And the question that they ask that we're going to think about today is, what will be the sign of your coming? What's that sign of your coming? Now, since we're talking about the coming, some of you who have studied these things before and have uh, looked at, uh, at uh, how un uh, the end time events are going to unfold, some of you have a question, and the question is, what about the rapture? 
Where's the rapture in Matthew chapter 24? You know that event in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. 1 Thessalonians 4. Where is that here in Matthew chapter 24? Well, I don't think it's here. It's not mentioned in this passage of Scripture. Why not? Well, I can think of two reasons. On the one hand, some brothers and sisters say that that rapture described in 1 Thessalonians 4, the word rapture is the Latin word caught up, uh, will be caught up together with him in the clouds, uh, that that event is so close, so similar, so related in time to the second coming that it doesn't merit special mention here in Matthew 24. There's some brothers and sisters who believe that. There are other brothers and sisters who say, no, no, that, that's probably not it. The, the reason it's not mentioned here in Matthew 24 is because that the rapture as a subject was, was revealed to Christ's people later. Not all of the events of the end times are unfolded at the same time, and, and that rapture event is, is going to be revealed later by, by Paul. I happen to think that that rapture and the second coming are two distinct uh, events but that's not the focus here in this passage. The focus here is on this passage are, is on the events that are going to happen before AD 70, the destruction of the temple, and before the second coming, and Jesus expects he's going to have people here on the earth. And here is counsel for them. Here's the sign. We're going to talk about the sign of that destruction and his coming, um, and today, as we talk about it, I should warn you, to, we're gonna, there's going to be a lot more information today than application. Huh. Last week, do you remember I told you that in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus gives more, more emphasis to application than information? That's true. You'll see that, I, I trust, when we move further, Lord willing, into chapters 24 and 25. But today, we're going to talk more about the information. Jesus cares not cares, that's not the right word. Jesus emphasizes in this passage your character more than the chronology, your outlook rather than the outline. That takes priority. But he does give information about the chronology. That's what we're going to do. We're going to talk today about the events, and then we're gonna, we are going to spend, before we finish, a few minutes on the response, how Jesus expects his people to live in light of the events he's going to unfold. And there are two events that I want to talk about. The first one I have uh, mentioned, not too much, but the first event here in this passage, the sign of his coming, the sign that the temple is going to be destroyed is the abomination of desolation. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. The abomination of desolation would make an awesome name for your fantasy football team next year. You think that. Some of you are thinking that. Don't do that. The abomination of desolation is... Uh, it, it's, it's a horror. It's a terrible thing. It's, it's, it sounds funny in English with its slight rhyme and its, its King James words. But this is, this is like joking about suicide bombers or about childhood cancer. It's, it's terrible. The word abomination means a, a, a desecration, a sacrilegious act, a... Uh, um, it's a desecration of the temple. You see verse 15, when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination. 
some sort of desecration of the temple. And it comes with extreme violence against God's people. And it's an abomination that causes desolation. That is, it's an abomination that invites, that incites God's wrath, God's serious judgment. We've been talking, uh, last week my my, uh, sister and I were talking about watching football games this fall. She's a a more avid fan of the Buffalo Bills than I am. Uh, But we were talking about watching the games and, and she's, I said to her, do, do you notice it just seems like there's penalties, penalties, penalties all the time. Every, every, every play, it seems like the flag is thrown, the flag is thrown. And uh, one commentator, I don't remember which one it was, says, well, the referees seem to be camera hungry today. <laughs> penalties, penalties, penalties. And I don't want there to be cheating. I don't want there to be, uh, I, don't, I, uh, I, don't, I want people to play fairly, uh, but it seems a little excessive, except, except. Every now and then, uh, it happens once or twice a season, there's a foul that is so egregious, just so vicious and so clearly wrong that everybody in the stadium and everybody watching just knows, ooh, that was bad. And sometimes when it's so egregious, that player can receive the highest penalty possible for the NFL to do. You're out of the game. We're kicking you out of the game. And maybe there's going to be fines, penalties, financial fines because of this horrible thing that you have done. Think about that here, the abomination that causes desolation, a penalty that is so severe, or a foul that is so severe that invites the highest penalties. Jesus says, this is the sign. This is the sign. And he says, it's the sign that Daniel the prophet spoke about. And Matthew says, go ahead and figure that out. Actually, he says, let the reader understand. But what he means is, go ahead and figure it out. Well, let's do that, shall we? Take your Bibles and turn with me back to Daniel chapter 9. Let's go back to the prophet Daniel, and let's think about this uh, together for a few minutes. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to talk about Daniel and, who, uh, and how he prophesied the abomination that causes desolation. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to start reading in verse 24. Daniel 9 is, uh, verse 24, is a prophecy that comes in response to a prayer, also a, a prayer. Daniel has prayed. He has read Jeremiah. He's thought about God's plan for uh, his people Israel in the city of Jerusalem. And Daniel prayed, God, what are you going to do? Uh, will you, how are you going to fulfill your promises that you made? And Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, reveal here to Daniel the prophet God's plans for his people. He says, verse 24, 70 sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. So they're for the people, for Daniel's people, the Jews, and for the holy city, that is Jerusalem. And he says, 70 sevens are decreed. Now, there's a lot of discussion about this. Many Bible scholars think that the sevens represent a seven-year period of time. So 70 sevens. 77-year periods of time would be 490 years. God has a 490-year plan for his people and for the city of Jerusalem, all right? What's he going to accomplish in that 490-year plan? Verse 24 tells us, read this list. It's an astounding list. God is the only person who ever accomplishes his to-do list every day. And here's God's to-do list 
He's given himself 490 years to do it. Uh, 77 is decreed for your people in your holy city to do what? To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. You thought your to-do list was long. Here's what God's going to do. All right, here's how he's going to do it. Verse 25, no one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, all right, there was a decree that was made in 444 BC by Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Okay. Seven, seven-year periods of time. That's 49 years. 62 seven-year periods of time. If I add all that up, I get 483 years. You ready to follow me here for just a minute? The decree to rebuild Jerusalem, 444 BC. Add 483 years to it. Take into account leap years. Take into account that the Jewish calendar is slightly different than our calendar. If you add 483 years from Daniel, from 444 BC, you get AD 30, which is the year that the Lord Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem. Daniel prophesies this. Look, I'll read it again here. We'll see. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 444 BC, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be 483 years. The city will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Then, after that 483 years, after that 62 sevens, the second part of that, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Temple's going to be destroyed. City's going to be destroyed. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He, verse 27, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, a seven-year covenant that this person is going to make. Who's the he? Who's the he in this passage? Well, the most common, the person who's just mentioned up in 26 is the ruler who will come. It says his people will destroy the city, but he, he will make this covenant. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up, here it is, we've been reading for so long, an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So Daniel prophesied, Daniel said that someday something's going to happen in the temple. It's going to be an abomination that causes desolation. And here he says, he, he gives details about when it's going to be and who this person is going to be setting up this abomination of desolation. And Jesus says, that's going to be the sign. Now, Daniel 9 is not the only place that mentions the abomination of desolation. Flip over with me to Daniel chapter 11. He talks about the abomination of desolation. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, we introduce, get introduced to another his, another he. 
Who's the he here? We'll talk about that in just a minute. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Now, Daniel chapter 11 is a fascinating passage of scripture. Daniel 9 has this 490-year plan in place. Daniel 11 is a passage of scripture that talks in prophetic ways and sometimes mysterious language about what's going to happen to the Jews after Daniel dies, after the Old Testament ends. And, and it gives us a chronology about the kings. It talks about king of the south, king of the north. And it gives us a history of what's going to happen. And we can take Daniel 11 and we can put it next to a chronology that our archaeologists have uncovered. And we know that Daniel 11 verse 31 is a reference to a man by the name of Antiochus IV. Oh my goodness. Can I give you a little bit of history? You're okay for just a few minutes? All right, if you don't like history at all, you can just phase out for just a minute. Somebody will elbow you in a couple minutes. Okay, so here's, have you ever wondered, why is it that the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins so differently? When the Old Testament history ends, God's people are in the land, but they're ruled over by the Persians. At the beginning of the New Testament, they're in the land still, and they're ruled over by the Romans, and everybody speaks Greek. How did that happen? You ever wondered about that? Well, the Old Testament history, as it's narrated, ends about the year 430 AD, uh, BC, 430 BC. And for the next hundred years, uh, Israel, Jerusalem was still ruled over by the Persians, but there was conflict between the Persians and the Greeks. The Persians in the east and the Greeks in the west, they were fighting, they were having conflict, and, and Jerusalem was just Jerusalem being ruled over by the Persians. Until A.D. 334, a man by the name of Alexander the Great, there he is, came to power. In 334 B.C., when he was 22 years old, he left Greece and went on a massive campaign against the Persians, and he won. In four years, he defeated the Persians, he defeated the Egyptians, he was on his way to India, and along the way, he spread Greek culture, Greek philosophy, the Greek language. It all became Greek to everyone. Alexander died very young. He was very young, and his kingdom was divided into four parts. And Jerusalem was right on the border of two of those parts. And Jerusalem was often involved in some ways in this civil war that happened between these two um, uh, descendants. They weren't descendants. They were um, generals who took over these regions after Alexander died. One of those was a man by the name of Antiochus IV. And Antiochus IV, there is a bust it's a busted bust of Antiochus Epiphanes. He's got no nose. One assumes that the real Antiochus did have a nose, but uh, this bust is busted. So at AD 175, Antiochus comes to power. And Antiochus is, I want to put this delicately and be sensitive to him, a bloodthirsty, cruel tyrant. And he named himself, show us that picture again, Antiochus Epiphanes which means the manifestation of God. He was not a humble man. His uh, enemies, his critics used to call him Antiochus Epimenes, which means madman. Antiochus uh, came to power in 175 BC, and he was ruling, and he was a little nervous about this city to his um, uh, west that was rising in power, 
called Rome. He was nervous about this city and what it was going to do. Actually, Antiochus had a war with Rome at one point in time. He lost, but he came back to lick his wounds and decided that if he was ever going to defeat Rome for good, his people needed to be united, completely united. So he made an announcement to the Jews that they could no longer consider themselves Jews. They could no longer circumcise their boys. They could no longer speak Hebrew. They could no longer read the Old Testament. They could no longer offer sacrifices to Yahweh at the temple in Jerusalem. How do you think that went over? Not well. He invaded Jerusalem because there was rebellion against him. He invaded Jerusalem. In the process, he killed 80,000 people. And he went into the temple in Jerusalem. He dedicated the temple to Zeus, the Greek god Zeus. He offered pig's blood on it. And that is an abomination that causes desolation. Oh. That's what Daniel's talking about in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, the abomination that causes desolation. Antioch, Antiochus Epiphanes did it for the first time. Now, let's leave Antiochus Epiphanes aside for just a minute. Do you know, so um, after Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple that way, there was, a, a, again, a Jewish revolt, and they recaptured the city and took the city back from Antiochus Epiphanes, this group of Jews. They rededicated the temple, and Jews today commemorate that rededication of the temple every year in a festival they call Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a celebration of the rededication of the temple that took place in 167 BC, and Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Look at John 10, 22. It's going to appear, and it says, then came the festival of dedication. Chanuk is the Hebrew word for dedication. Then came the festival of Chanuk uh, at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. He did not tell them plainly. Jesus, now listen, so Antiochus the Epiphanes, Daniel eleven thirty one commits an abomination that causes desolation. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, we'll come back to Matthew 24 now, Jesus says, there's another one that's going to happen, though. There is another abomination that causes desolation. You're going to see it. It's going to be the sign that the temple is going to be destroyed. And he says, when you see it, run. I'm not exactly sure what that abomination was in AD 70. It wasn't the destruction of the temple itself, because it would have been too late to run if the temple's already destroyed. There was something that happened in the temple that was abominable. And Jesus says, when you see it, run. Now, I'm of the opinion that actually there's going to be another abomination of desolation that's going to uh, happen before the second coming. I think Paul writes about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look what it says. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter. Now, let's just stop for a minute here because this is inevitably going to happen in the month of December. All of our news magazines and several of our news websites publish articles about Jesus and they highlight gospels that are not in our Bibles. They'll highlight the gospel of Thomas, they'll highlight the gospel of Judas, and they'll say, look at these gospels. They're not included in the New Testament, but they should have been because look at what these things say about Jesus. And they say all kinds of heretical things about Jesus. False gospels written under false pretenses. 
and, and it will be news. It's not news. Look, Paul says, people have, been, people have been writing letters in my name. Paul even knew this. Back in the New Testament, he knew. People are writing letters in my name. Don't be upset or alarmed by them. So when you see it in the news magazines or on the website about the new gospels or the new old gospels that we should include in the New Testament, say, that's an old story. Heard that before. It's not news. Anyway, Paul says, don't be uh, concerned by these letters asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, here's this person. Remember in Daniel 9, there was a he who's the he who sets up the abomination of desolation. Paul here is talking about a he too, the man of lawlessness who's going to be revealed, doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. That's abominable. How many abominations of desolation? One in Antioch's day, Antiochus, Antiochus, Epiphanes, one in AD 70, one before Jesus comes back. And what are you supposed to do when you see it? Run, run. Don't go into your house and grab your jacket. Don't go back and get your cell phone charger. Don't go back and get your picture of your grandmother. Run. If you're working and your your coat's on the side of the field, don't get it. Run. Don't take anything with you. If you're pregnant uh, or nursing, you can leave your cell phone charger behind. You can't leave your baby behind. Oh, it's going to be bad. I hope it's not in winter because... It's harder to travel in winter. And if it's on the Sabbath, the stores will be closed. The uh, uh, city gates might be closed. It's going to be hard to run. It's going to be a season of distress, verse 21, unparalleled distress. When the Romans in AD 70 destroyed the temple, they killed 1.1 million Jews in that assault on that city. They sold 70,000 of them into slavery. The siege was horrific. Cannibalism broke out in Jerusalem when they were um, sieging that city in AD 70. It's bad. It's bad. This is the great sign, the abomination that causes desolation, some desecration in the temple. It's the sign. There's another sign Jesus mentions here, false messiahs. already mentioned this, false messiahs. Jesus said in verse 27, You're not going to miss it when the Son of Man comes. You're not going to miss it when he returns. Everybody's going to see it. Everybody's going to know. Think about the differences between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. When he came the first time, he came very quietly in the womb of the Virgin Mary, was born in a very small town on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and the only guys who showed up to pay any mind to it were a few shepherds and a, a several months later, some wise men from the east. Very, very quiet. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. It's silent. In comparison, though, the second coming, you're not going to miss it. It's going to be loud. It's going to be big. It's going to be bright. You're not going to miss it. Don't fall for these false messiahs. Now, those are the events that Jesus talks about. They they asked about the sign of your coming. That's the event that he has in mind. 
Now, what are you supposed to do in response to that? This is helpful for Jesus' people who are alive on the earth during these events. It's helpful for us too. He offers us some reminders that will help us, particularly in our own, these are troubled times, particularly in our own troubled times. Two responses to share with you briefly before we finish. Number one, remember God's work in your suffering. Remember God's work in your suffering. Verse 22 almost seems like a parenthesis, but I want to focus on it for just a minute. He says, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Who's going to shorten the days? God's going to shorten the days. Why is God going to shorten the days? For his own people, for his people that he loves. God is at work, even in these tumultuous times that Jesus is describing, to protect his people, to care for his people. It's not going to last as long because of God's care for his people. There's two factors in this passage. One, this passage talks to us about God's sovereign control about God's sovereign control. He's overseeing these events. He has the power to shorten them. He knows what will happen if they go on too long. He's the master of these events. Like Ephesians 1.11 reminds us, God is the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Or Psalm 115.3, God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. God's sovereign control. Then, notice here God's loving care. God's loving care For their sake, he shortens these days. His care doesn't mean absolute escape, but but it's suffering. Their suffering is shaped and modified and arranged by him because he cares. I wonder if you suffer with that level of certainty in God's sovereign control and in his loving care. Mike Anderson worked for a number of years before it closed for a Christian publishing a group called the Resurgence. And he was in London several years ago with the Resurgence and an eye infection that had started before he left even just spread and, and grew to the point where he was having trouble seeing. He was there with a group of his coworkers from the Resurgence and they frankly did not treat him very well. But he came across, he met in the course of one of the ministry um, meetings that they had. He met a man, an African immigrant to Great Britain who was planting a church outside of London. This man's name was Tapi Colioso. Tapi Colioso saw Mike Anderson and the trouble that he was having, and, and he agreed to help him that day with it. And he took him all over London. He led him by the hand through the city of London, the emergency room, to an eye specialist, to the pharmacy, back to hotel. So he he give the medicine and then start the treatment. Toppy took care of him all day long when he was blind. Do you have a God who cares about you sufficiently to take you by the hand and lead you through the places that you cannot see? I wonder how much your suffering has been shortened because of God's loving care. Friends, Jesus has saved us. He'll take us home. He'll keep us. He'll carry us. He'll guide us. He'll lead us. That's who he is. For their sake, Jesus says, these days will be shortened. It's striking, verse 20 says, pray 
that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, we just talked about God's sovereign control. He does whatever he pleases. This verse is a puzzle in here, right? Prophesied events, certain to happen. Jesus says, you should pray that it doesn't happen in winter. How certain are these events? This is the first instance, actually, in all the Bible where anybody is commanded to pray for traveling mercies. You have to be a Christian for a long time to know what that means. But uh, traveling mercies. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. I, I, I can't quite put that together. I can't quite put that together how God's sovereign plans here will be changed. Uh, 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 God will respond to your praying that it won't happen in winter. But Jesus gives, gives this command with the expectation that it will make a difference, right? And why? Because God is able and willing to listen to his people, his sovereign control, his loving care. Now, second here, remember God's word in your suffering. Remember God's word in your suffering. There are false messiahs. Some of them are quite impressive. Some of them can do superhuman things. And the question becomes, where can we hear from Jesus? Where can we meet with Jesus? Well, we followers of Jesus know he speaks in his word and he's present in his church. Is he in the wilderness? No. Is he in the inner rooms? No. Is he here? No. Is he there? No. Where is he? He's in his word. He speaks in his word and he's present with his people. Even his imperfect, flawed people, he's present there. Where can I go to meet with Jesus? Where can I go to hear from Jesus? He speaks to us until he comes through his word. He's present with his people in his church. It's astounding here. These people that Jesus speaks about uh, who are in Jerusalem, they're, they're crying out. They're suffering. They're crying out, where's the Messiah? We want him. We want him. Where is he? Where is he? Is he here? Is he there? They're looking everywhere for him. How different that is in their attitude toward Jesus when he was actually in Jerusalem. Remember that? He said to them, you don't want me. I tell you I'm going to leave and you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. John 1 spoke about this. He said, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. They didn't want him not natural to want Jesus. But Jesus, God, if, if you want to hear from Jesus, it is a sign of God's grace in your life for which you should give thanks. John 1.12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God, born of God, God's grace. There's no promise in the Bible for any of God's people of an easy life. But we do have the promises that God won't abandon us in the midst of our hard lives. And he does promise, too, that he will return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for these words. They're hard. Matthew even told us it was going to be hard to understand would take work and thought. We are assured, though, that, God, you have a plan, and you are going to work out your plan, even though it involves some hard and horrible things. 
you care for us. There are some people in this room, your children, who are going through hard and horrible things too. And I pray that you would remind them of these great words for the sake of the elect, for the sake of your people. You shorten hard days. You are merciful to us. Sustain us, Lord Jesus. You are the one who keeps us. And I pray too that you would fill us with hope because of the certain promise that Jesus is coming back. Come quickly, we pray, Lord Jesus. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying together, Amen.